Uh, guys, Luke 12, actually one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke for a number of reasons. It's a long chapter and there's a number of things covered there. But one of the things that Jesus talks about in Luke 12 is a parable or sort of a story or a description of a master who leaves his household and he leaves it in charge of a steward. This really isn't the language that we use today. Because there was slavery, there were servants in a way that we don't use today. But the steward was the chief servant. So he was responsible in the master's absence for everything that was going on in the household. So when the master leaves, the steward's in charge. It's important to remember, the steward doesn't own anything. He lives in his master's house. The stuff is his master's. His responsibility is to do his master's will. It's not what he wants. It's not what he decides is good. It's what does my master want? What are the responsibilities he's left me with? That's what I'm responsible for in his absence. Now in Luke 12, starting at verse 42, Jesus describes this relationship and he says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Certain responsibilities the master expects the steward to take care of in his absence. He says, blessed, happy is that servant whom his master will find doing that when he comes. So he's going to come back. The guy that's been doing the right thing, it's a happy time. He said, truly I say to you, he, the master will set him, the steward, over all his possessions. He'll elevate him. He will reward him for merely doing the things he was supposed to do. He said, but if the servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. So now he's not only not doing what the master left him, he's abusing his position. He's abusing his responsibilities. Uh, the master of that servant will come on a day he doesn't expect. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This is not pleasant. Verse 47, that servant who knew his master's will but didn't get ready, this guy's just slothful. He's negligent. He's not abusing his position. He's just not fulfilling his responsibility. Uh, it says he will, be, he will receive a severe beating. This is not pleasant either. We don't want to be on the receiving end of either of those. But he concludes by saying this, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And this just sets the stage for the message we're getting to, into this morning. And as we do, it's important that we understand whether we're a Christian today or not, but especially if we are believers in Jesus, that no matter who you are, or how much you're in charge of, what your responsibilities look like, you and I have been given much, just broadly. Amen. We've been given a ton. And so it's a given that we have responsibilities. Each and every one of us has areas of responsibilities that God means us to be faithful in. And at the end of the day, it's everything you are and it's everything you have. It's nothing less than that. So as we go through the life of a villain this morning, we want to remind ourselves this isn't just about kings or governors or politicians or wealthy people. This all filters down to you and I because the principle applies. What has God given us? We're stewards of whatever we have. What does faithfulness as God's steward require of us? And is that what we're doing? Because guys, all of us, 
if we are unbelievers, if we die without Christ and without hope, we can, we can add to the punishment we will have in eternity through abuse of others or what God has given us or what we do to others. If we're believers, though, it's possible for us to lose the kind of rewards the steward here is going to be rewarded. The master is going to elevate him for faithfulness for just doing what he was supposed to do. But you and I will all stand before Christ as believers, not for judgment on our sins because that's all past, but simply as a steward, were you faithful where I put you with what I gave you to do? That's the only question. The judgment seat of Christ for believers is simply a stewardship issue. Were we faithful with what God gave us when He put us there where He put us? That's the only question. So we are in the 33rd message in the Heroes and Villains series, and the villain this morning is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam follows Solomon basically. We'll look at a timeline here in a minute. But he's the first king of Israel, of the northern tribes. And just to put this in context, well, you guys can see that pretty well, actually. So, timeline context, Solomon reigned from 970 B.C. to 930 B.C. And you remember, under Solomon, Israel has the greatest territory, the most wealth, the most prestige, the most influence in its history. It's never been the same since. Rehoboam follows Solomon in 930. And we'll get into a little bit more of this in a bit. But Rehoboam's going to lose the northern ten tribes. And it's because of his father's idolatry. And you guys, it bears saying this, though this isn't our lesson. What you and I do affects not only ourselves, it affects others around us. You know, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a sister, you're a brother, you're a friend. What you and I do never is restricted to us, the implications. And so Rehoboam's not going to reign over the kingdom of David. He's going to reign only over the southern tribes because of his father's idolatry. And then Jeroboam is going to come along the red circle there, and he's going to reign for 22 years, 930 to 910 B.C. inclusive. And then we'll look at his life. That's, the, that's where we're going this morning. The two main points, and these are related. The first is this. All that you and I are given in life ultimately is from God. We owe our existence to God. We breathe. We exist within the providential will of God. Nothing we have is ultimately ours. We are gifted much, and much is expected of us in return. And so as stewards, we need to have a stewardship view of life. That's the first lesson. We'll see that primarily in the lesson this morning in Jeroboam. But related to that, each time our sin is called out, so I'm a steward and the master comes back and says, hey, you're blowing it over here. How do I respond to that? When God reproves me, when I'm convicted of my sin, when I realize I'm not being faithful in some area of my life, how do I respond to that? Jeroboam does not respond well. And it's a picture of some of the kinds of losses that you and I may suffer or others may suffer as well for lack of faithfulness. We're going to start in 1 Kings 11. And guys, this is going to be a little rough this morning. I'm going to, we're going through a, a portions of five chapters, 1 Kings 11 through 15. And so we'll be jumping in and out of the text this morning to, to pick up the salient points. This is uh, page 292 if you use a pew Bible. So Jeroboam is introduced while Solomon is still alive. And Jeroboam 
is noticed by Solomon that he's a very capable guy. And so if you remember, under Solomon, Solomon had all this sequestered help. The foreigners who lived in Israel were required to act as Solomon's labor force. And so Jeroboam was put over the labor force of the areas of Ephraim and Manasseh. This was a huge piece of Israel's geography. He was a very capable guy. Well, this is verse 29, 1 Kings eleven twenty-nine. Jeroboam on a certain day was going out of Jerusalem and the prophet Ahijah found him on the road. Ahijah takes his new robe, he tears it off, he tears that robe into 12 pieces and he gives Jeroboam 10 pieces. And he tells him, God is going to tear 10 pieces, 10 tribes, from the kingdom of Solomon and give them to you. But it's not going to happen in Solomon's day. It's going to happen in the days of his son, Rehoboam. God's going to keep David's throne in the south. Judah's going to be there. But you're going to get the northern ten tribes. Verse 33 there, he tells him why God is doing this. He says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped, and he lists some of the regional idols, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in, and listen to the language here, God is very possessive, and listen to the possessive language here. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I won't take the whole kingdom, but I'll make him the ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David. I'll take the kingdom out of his son's hand, give it to you, ten tribes. His son gets to continue to rule in Jerusalem in the south. So, after Solomon's dies, God's going to give Jeroboam the northern ten tribes because of Solomon's idolatry. Now, God is going to make what we call a vassal treaty with Jeroboam. So, in Luke 12, the parable is about a master of a household and his steward. This is a little different, but the dynamics are similar. Back in the ancient days, it was common in an empire that there'd be one high king. Now, there were lots of kings in the empire. You remember, city-states were sometimes kingdoms. Regional areas were kingdoms. So those were vassal kings if they were subject to the high king. And like a steward of a household, the vassal owed his allegiance to the high king, not to himself. The high king would come in, and you see this, of course, in Israel's history. This is what happens under Babylonian rule. They would replace a king if that king didn't do what the high king wanted. And that's what's going on here. God now is the high king. And Solomon was his vassal. And Solomon was faithless at the end of his life. And so God's going to make a conditional vassal treaty with Jeroboam. And that's the language we pick up here in verse 37. So God gives Jeroboam this conditional covenant. And this is it. He says, I'll take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. You shall be king over Israel. And here's the condition and the promise. Verse 38. If you will listen to all that I command, will walk in my ways, do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, you get the picture. God says this is about my things, my way, not yours. If you'll do that, as David my servant did, I will do this. 
I will be with you. I will build you a sure house like I built for David. I will give Israel to you. Now guys, we need to understand this is the same promise God made to David. Jeroboam's just been a guy that's been overseeing work crews, not an insignificant role, but he hasn't earned any of this. God comes along one day, knocks on his shoulder and says, I'm going to make you king. And this is what you're supposed to do. This is the responsibility I give to you. And if you'll do this like David did, this is not impossible. It's not sinlessness. It's not perfection. But it's that bent of heart to do God's things God's way. He says, if you'll do that, I'll do the same thing for you that I did for the house of David. I'll be with you. I'll build your household. Your sons will follow you on that throne ruling over Israel. It's a great promise. He did nothing to deserve it. It's a gift. All I'm asking you to do is this. He says, if you do that, this is what I'll do for you, just like David. Verse 40. Now, Solomon hears about this promise. What do you think he's thinking about that? Is he happy? Maybe not. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And guys, in this story... Uh, I don't know how much this interests you. I love seeing the connections throughout the Scripture. And this story is filled with connections to other narratives, especially in the Old Testament. Just as King Saul tried to kill his successor David, Solomon now looks like King Saul because he understands Jeroboam is his successor. And what does he try and do? He tries to kill his successor just like Saul. He's in, the, he's in the spot of the bad guy now. And Jeroboam flees to another nation in the south, in fact, to Egypt. What did David do when he was being oppressed by Saul? He fled. Usually he fled south, and he fled to other nations, just like Jeroboam's doing now. Solomon looks like the bad guy initially. Jeroboam looks like the good guy. And also think of this. Who else fled to Egypt until the king that wanted to kill them died, and then they came back after that king died. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, just like Jesus. So at this point, Jeroboam is being painted like David was early, or like Jesus is in the future. This all sounds sparkling and good. It just doesn't continue that way, unfortunately. So, let me get you a map. So Solomon dies, and the nation comes to Rehoboam, his son. This is 930 B.C. And basically, they say this to Rehoboam. They said, your dad was a little hard on us. And you remember all the building programs, the temple, his own palace, the cities he built, you name it, and the taxes he levied. They said, it's been a hard, grueling ride. If you'll just lighten up on us a little bit, we'll be glad to serve you. And Rehoboam says, well, let me get back to you. Now, remember, God's already determined that he's going to lose the northern ten tribes. But the method by which Rehoboam loses the tribes is all on his own, okay? Because the people say, just lighten up a little bit. Rehoboam listens to the old wise guys. They say, yeah, do what they say. They'll love you forever. He goes to the young bucks, his own guys. They say, nope, wrong. And so Rehoboam goes out and he tells them, you think my dad was bad? I'm twice the man he was. And if you think he was harsh, I'm going to be much, much harsher. And so the nation says, we have no standing in the household of David. We're out of here. We're gone. And then it says in verse 20, Israel heard that Jeroboam has come back. 
they sent, they called him to the assembly. They made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And on this map, if you see the colors aren't bright, but the pale green is Israel. It's the northern tribes. And the black, dark rectangles represent the two political centers we'll read about here in just a second for Jeroboam, Shechem and Penuel. And so in the center of his new kingdom, he's got two political centers. And then again, as we'll read in a moment, he also establishes two new idol shrines. One's in the north, the very north end of Israel at Dan. The other's the very south end of Israel, just north of uh, Jerusalem in Bethel. So here's another weird twist. The elements of this story sound like the Exodus also. So Solomon looks like Pharaoh now because Solomon ends his life worshiping a number of false gods and idols, just like Pharaoh did. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, looks like Pharaoh also because when the Jews say to him, hey, lighten up, does that sound familiar? Isn't that what the Jews ask Pharaoh? Lighten up. And what does Pharaoh say? Nope, it's gonna make, I'm going to make it harder. That's exactly what Rehoboam does. They both look like the bad guys now. Jeroboam initially looks like Moses because he comes out of Egypt to deliver God's people in this new kingdom until he looks like Aaron because he creates the golden calves. And that's the passage we'll pick up here. So this is 1 Kings 12, starting at verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. So that's in the main area of Israel. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. That's on the other side of the Jordan River Valley. Now, before we get into this, remember that God Almighty has made a vassal treaty or conditional covenant with Jeroboam that says, just do things my way. I'll be with you. I'll build your house. Life will be grand. That's the promise. And this is Jeroboam's response. Verse 26. Well, Jeroboam says in his heart, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. This guy has never once believed anything God told him. You know how you can tell what we really believe? It's what we do. It's not what we say. It's what we do. That's what we believe. If this people goes up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, and, and notice the language here. Jeroboam said in his heart, this is not God's word. We're in trouble if we simply follow the inclinations of our heart. Jeroboam said in his heart, then verse 28, the, the king took counsel. This again, this isn't God's word took counsel and made two calves of gold. That sounds like a brilliant plan. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel. That's what Aaron said at Mount Sinai when Moses delayed in coming back. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And basically it looks like he's trying to be shrewd about his, con um, his uh, consolidating power. He's got his political centers in the middle. And he's got his spiritual centers top and bottom. He wants to contain people within the borders of those northern tribes. Uh, let's see. He's one in Bethel and the other in Dan. This thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. 
So they're following his lead in idolatry. He also made temples on high places. He appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. He appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves. He, and listen again to the language. He made, he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to make the altar to make offerings. Again, in all the language, God says do my things my way and what you've got in Jeroboam's response is my things my way. Absolutely faithless. So, put this in perspective briefly. God tells Jeroboam, I'm giving you the northern tribes because Solomon sinned in idolatry. And so what's the first thing Jeroboam does? He follows Solomon in idolatry. Where Solomon ended is where he begins. He clearly didn't take in anything that God had said. He doesn't start with any degree of faithfulness as God's vassal and God's king. His responsibility is to lead Israel like David did, but instead he begins his reign just the way Solomon had ended his with idolatry. Beyond that, Jeroboam has set up an entirely new religion. So you've got two new centers of idol worship. You've got a new priesthood. They aren't Levites. And probably it went like this. It was a means of raising funds. You want to be a priest? That's fine. You give me this much money and you're a priest. Lo and behold. It says he also set up his own feast days. He wants to do anything to keep his people from worshiping God the way God said they were to in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is Rehoboam's kingdom. He's afraid he's going to lose them, but it wouldn't have happened because that would have run contrary to God's promise. He's absolutely faithful. He refuses the call to every vassal to serve their master and their high king faithfully so that he can spend God's gifts on himself and use God's people for himself. And this is a big deal. Um, when you read through First and Second Kings or Second Chronicles, when you read about any of the kings in the south, they're all compared to David. David is the touchstone. And David's the high water mark. And it, it'll say something like, and they were faithful like David was faithful. Or no one had been as faithful since David as this king. David's the high water mark. Jeroboam becomes the touchstone for the northern tribes and for that kingdom for the next 200 years plus, And he's the low water mark. And every king in Israel is compared to Jeroboam. And if you've studied this, you know how many good kings were in Israel in over 200 years? There's not one. There's not one. And they're all compared to Jeroboam. Jeroboam set the pace. And when they're compared to Jeroboam, it says something like this. He did what was evil, like his father Jeroboam. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of Jeroboam, walking in the sin of Jeroboam, didn't turn aside from the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam sets the standard for the rest of the kings of Israel. There's not one good in over 200 years until God ships them out by the Assyrians in 722. So, Jeroboam, he's a vassal, he's a steward, he's been given much, and he's been absolutely faithless. Now this... This is a king, right? And so we might, we might distance ourselves from it. But again, we want to bring this home and I want to do so in two ways briefly here. Jeroboam's sin was idolatry on one hand 
but it was idolatry for the sake of serving his own desires. Now guys, you've got that same spirit of Jeroboam is alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ today. The professing church of Christ. Guys, we are filled with idols around the world. If people bow to a statue and pray to it, it's idolatry. I grew up with this. My wife grew up with this. This isn't just Roman Catholics in the United... This is around the world. This is nothing more than idolatry. This serves some people's interest. It's not just idolatry, though. Kent sent me a link this week. Um, the abuse. Remember, what have I been given? What have I been trusted with? And how am I responding as a steward of what God's given me? Abuse in the church, physical and sexual, is still going on today. There's new or there's continuing... Um, KBI investigation going on in Kansas today over clergy abuse of kids in Kansas. This is still going on today. There's physical... This is someone using someone else. They're supposed to be responsible to help. There's also, though, in evangelical, broadly, circles, the whole thing with the prosperity gospel. Guys, there are guys laughing in their teacups at the money they are taking from God and God's cause and God's people. Uh, private jets, limousines, mansions, you name it. This is abuse. This is faithlessness as far as stewardship of leaders in the church, in the professing church, at least. So this isn't just something that took place a long time ago. This goes on today as well. And it goes on among those who, like Jeroboam in his day, claim to be God's people. Contrast that. The series is all, remember, always about Christ-like transformation in us. That's what God's doing. God's great work in you and I is making us more like Christ. Perfect. Perfecting us in Christ. Ultimately, it doesn't happen until we see Him face-to-face -face and have new bodies, but that's what He's doing. What does Jesus look like as a steward? And remember, this is where we started the whole series. You look at Jesus, God the Son incarnate, His model of relationship with heaven is humility and faithfulness in everything He does. John 4.34 says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish His work. Jesus says, that's what I live for. That's what I live on is simply being faithful to God my Father. John 5.19, The Son can do nothing as of His own accord. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He says, I'm taking my cues always from my Father. I'm always about my Father's business. You remember when the disciples say, Jesus, how should we pray? And He gives them a model for prayer. He says, Our Father in heaven, holiness to Your name. To You be glory. Your will be done and Your kingdom come. It's about You and Your things. That's supposed to be our model as well. And what we find is when Christ-like transformation is occurring in us, what we find is humility and the desire to be faithful with whatever it is God has given us in the time and the place God has given us. You don't have to be a king. You don't have to be a politician to say, I've been entrusted with much and I'll give an account for that. And we will. This is a good time just to pause and ask ourselves some questions. Uh, do I see myself as Lord of my own life or as God's servant? Now, we are sons and daughters of God. and We're, we're, we're taking a particular cue today 
from the text, we are, we are more than servants. We are more than vassals. We are more than stewards. We are sons and daughters of the living God. But as sons and daughters, we still have responsibilities for where God's put us and what He's entrusted to us. Do I see myself as calling the own, my own shots or do I understand that I'm called to be faithful to whatever it is God's called me to? Sometimes I feel this way. It's like, Lord, if you'll just give me the checkbook, I'm good to go. And I'll check in with you later. Because I've got some good plans here. And I just need you to sign off on them. Do I put God and God's interests first? And guys, you can always check this. Look at your checkbook and look at your schedule, your calendar, your Google calendar, whatever else you use. Where's my money going? Where's my time and my activity and my efforts going? That determines, again, actions speak louder than words. Those are my priorities. There's no getting away from that. Those are my priorities. Do I see my life and everything in it as gifts I've been given in order to glorify God? Jeroboam did nothing to earn that, that role as king. It was gifted to him. It was just given to him. And <laughs> your stature, your looks, the time you were born, the, the common grace gifts you have by birth, the spiritual gifts you have by the Holy Spirit, everything you and I have, they are gifts to us. We live by God's benevolent grace. So everything we have, we're accountable for in that sense. Am I ready to give an account of my life and responsibilities to Christ my King? And what we're talking about here is the judgment seat of Christ, which sounds negative, but it, it should be a positive. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, and 2 Corinthians 5, these are not on your study sheet. They all talk about that for a believer, the end of our stewardship is to stand before our Master or the... The end of our vassal status is to stand before our high king and he just says, what would you do with what I gave you? It's a stewardship issue. Were you faithful with what I gave you? I was gone. You were there in my name, in my stead. Did you take care of the things I gave you? Because he wants to reward us. He's not going to be able to reward us for everything, right? We used to use allowance for our girls as a form of manipulation. You know, we gave them an allowance so that we could manipulate them. And this is what I would say to them. Girls, I want to give you the whole $5. That's what I want. But if you don't, if your behavior doesn't allow me to, then you'll lose some of that $5. Well, that's sort of like this. God, Jesus wants to reward us. He's giving us opportunities like He had to invest in what the Father's doing on the earth. And when we're faithful, and guys, it doesn't require much. I should be careful the way I say this. It doesn't require much on one hand. It requires everything on the other, okay? Salvation's free. Discipleship costs you your life. I don't want to diminish from that. But just to say, you and I being faithful in a given time or place, it just requires that little bit of us saying, God, I'm willing. You know, if I, I'm willing, my heart's divided, you help me, Lord. But I, I want to do what you want me to do. That's what I mean. Do I trust that my high king's rewards will be worth whatever sacrifices I make here and now. And this really does require faith. If you don't believe that God, that Christ, wants to reward you, and that the rewards He has are, are more than anything you can desire on earth, you'll live for the earth instead. You'll live for right here and right now. It requires faith. This is God's word. 
This is His promise to me, and I'm living in light of that. It really does require faith. Jeroboam never had faith. He never believed God's Word. Do we believe God's Word? Do we take Him at His Word? So, Jeroboam's blowing it as this vassal king, and so God confronts him, as God often does. God confronts you and I, doesn't He, on our sin in the Word. Someone else talks to us. He makes us know things one way or another. We're blowing it. He confronts us. That's a good thing. So he confronted Jeroboam. Now, how will Jeroboam respond? He's a vassal king. He's not doing the right thing. God's going to confront him and give him an opportunity to repent. 1 Kings 13, 1-6. A man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. This is an image of that. He goes up to Jeroboam at the idol and he says, Hey, Jeroboam, this is the wrong thing, as you know. God's going to break this altar. The ashes are going to spill out. Uh, you need to get right. And by the way, in the future, one of David's descendants is going to come up here hundreds of years later, by the way. And he's going to destroy this idol shrine, this idol site. Josiah by name, it even says. Well, Jeroboam's not happy. And he's not soft-hearted and he's not repentant. So he sticks his hand out, and he points to the man of God, and he says, seize him. And as he does, it says his arm shrivels, or it's, it's a paralyzed, he can't pull it back. And he suddenly realizes, God spoke, I dissed God, and I can't pull my hand back. And so then he suddenly turns to the guy that he just said should be seized, and he says, oh, by the way, would you ask your God, he doesn't say my God, he says, would you ask your God to take care of this thing? And so God does. He asks and God gives him his arm back. It's all good. So, wow, that's good. So he's been reproved. He's been called to account. He's seen a demonstration of God's power. Surely he will repent. Or not. It says, verse 33, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again. From among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So you've got God gave Jeroboam the promises, but he chose his own way. God told Jeroboam, this is trouble for you. Shows him a demonstration of power. He keeps worshiping in the same way. And guys, the people of Israel who hear all this, they keep worshiping at those same shrines until God takes them out in 722, 200 years later. Now, God comes again and speaks to Jeroboam again. And this time, his son Abijah is sick. And so Mrs. Jeroboam goes down disguised to Ahijah, the prophet who told Jeroboam, God's making you king. Uh, she goes down, and Ahijah's old and blind at this point, but God's already said, this is who's coming down, and this is what I want you to say. And so, this is what Ahijah the prophet tells Jeroboam through his wife. Tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and listen to the language again. I exalted you. You didn't exalt yourself. I exalted you. I made you leader. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David. He basically says, I did what I said I would do. What did you do? He says, but you have done evil above all who were before you. You have made for yourself other gods. You have cast me behind your back. You've broken the vassal treaty. You've broken the covenant. You've been faithless in every respect. And this is what he says, verse 10. Therefore, behold, 
I bring harm, not blessing, I bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male. You remember Solomon's son lost the kingdom because of what his dad did. Jeroboam's sons will die because of what their dad did. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam. God confronted Jeroboam regarding his sin and his response was to harden his heart and now Jeroboam looks like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, whom God judged. And you remember just as Pharaoh lost his eldest son, Jeroboam loses in God's judgment Abijah his son and even though Jeroboam's son Nadab takes over the kingdom when Jeroboam dies, he lives for two years and he's murdered and Jeroboam's line is gone. There's no men left in his line. His line ends with his son. Just as God took the northern tribes away from Solomon's son, God takes the southern tribes. God takes the northern, or excuse me, yeah. God's going to take the kingdom now away from Jeroboam. We've got to be careful, guys, don't we? You know, on one hand, we have such privilege. We've been given so much that much is required and if we're simply willing, if we simply come to God and say, I want to be faithful, I know I blow it in tons of ways, but I want to be faithful, God will help us be faithful. We will be able to stand before Christ with some confidence, right? That He will find those things that were done for His name and for His cause. So as we're thinking about this, applying it to ourselves, in what area of life have I put my own desires above God's desires? If you can't think of anything in the moment, that's fine. Don't worry about it. But if something comes to mind, what is that thing? What is that area in which I've said to myself, I can do it better than God? I want things my way, not God's ways. I don't want to be faithful. What are those areas? What does God want from me in that area of life? Usually we know what God wants. By the way, if you don't, if we don't know what faithfulness requires of us, I can tell you a good place to start is to read your Bible to read the New Testament, read the epistles especially, right? Because God tells me there as his son or his daughter what he expects of me. Talk to other Christians, get in a Bible study. And guys, you and I can make choices in the moment today. If there's an area of life that is out of whack, we're not being faithful, and guys, all of us sin. We want to make, I want to be very clear on this. Kent series in 1 John. If you say you don't sin, you're lying liar right we sin so we're not saying nobody's going to be sinless we're just saying are we characterized by faithfulness that's the question is that where our heart is bent towards towards faithfulness to christ we can change in a moment we can pray something like this lord i acknowledge that my life and all that i have is yours and i'm giving you whatever that is my hopes for or my frustration with or that thing, whatever it was, that I want my way and I realize that's not what you want. And I give that thing to you and I can ask, God, in all of my life, glorify yourself in me and through me. And guys, there's nothing we can do that makes a fuller, richer life of more peace and joy than to seek God's glory. As Christ's vassal to seek Christ's honor as sons and daughters of the high king to seek his face, to seek his things, to seek his honor. It liberates us. It leaves us with peace and joy and confidence for the future. 
So Jeroboam is this great reminder. We have been entrusted with much. All of us here have. What are we doing with it? And are we responding in faithfulness such that Christ can say to us as His stewards, we're sons and daughters always, but as His stewards, as those who represent His name here, well done. Good job. Let me bless you. Let me reward you because you've been faithful with a little thing. I'm going to give you much. Okay? With that, would you stand with me and let's close by reading from Luke 12. This is one of the reasons why I love Luke 12. It's simply Jesus' conclusion about stewardship and where's my heart and what do I do? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, where no thief approaches, no moth is